Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The National Maternity Hospital deal is done, but political tensions remain, and some Greens rebel tonight. It would not be possible to deny a woman, uh, for example, an elective termination. It simply wouldn't be possible. Uh, and if it did happen, that could be raised immediately at a political level, and the Minister for Health could intervene. A growing political crisis between Dublin, London and Brussels as the UK Tory government moves on the protocol which prevents a land border on the island of Ireland. I am announcing our intention to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes in the protocol. And later, the very latest from the big social media scandal libel trial in London. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight. BMTV. But first tonight, the mother of Cork toddler Santina Cawley has spoken of her grief and anger towards the woman found guilty of murdering her two-year-old. In her first television interview, Bridget O'Donoghue told our Southern correspondent, Paul Byrne, that she had been robbed of her little girl. Karen Harrington is starting a life sentence after her conviction for the murder of the child at a Cork apartment in July 2019. Why did you do it to my baby? Why? 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 That's the answer. That's called why. She didn't give the answer. Why did she kill my baby? Like, what did she do to her? She's only two, Paul. She's only a baby, like, what did she do? Nothing at all. I have to go into that room, and I said, do you want to hold her? I said, do I want to, what? Of course I want to hold her. I hold her, and I was, I was trying to bring her back, she was very cold. So I was trying to, you know, warm her up. I didn't want to believe she was dead, you know? She's, just didn't want to see our eyes is open. All I want to do is just take her home. Bridget O'Donoghue there speaking to our Southern correspondent, Paul Byrne. Now, in other news this evening, the government has agreed to move the National Maternity Hospital to a site at the St Vincent's Hospital campus in South Dublin. But today's decision by the Cabinet is far from the end of the controversy and the debate is unlikely to be put to bed. This is big stuff, Taoiseach. The contract you signed locks the state into a deal where the state does not have ownership of the site for the National Maternity Hospitals. No matter how often you try and tell a different story or spin it or try and present it as not being state ownership, you are wrong. By any yardstick, that's not fair. We've addressed those issues through legal guarantees. 
and the advice to government is that those legal guarantees are watertight. Well, I'm joined tonight on our panel by Fine Gael TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Social Democrats co-leader, Roisin Shorthall, Irish Independent Ireland editor, Fionnán Sheehan, and Sunday Times columnist, David Quinn. You're all very welcome to the programme. Fionnán, I want to start with you because <laughs> where are we at at the moment when it comes to this Sinn Féin motion? There wasn't going to be a vote. There is a vote. Who's voting for it? Who's against it? Give us the very latest. Yeah, so Sinn Féin have put down a, a motion for tomorrow night and, and it was intended, I suppose, on Sinn Féin's part to try and flush out. Uh, the government put some principles, uh, set some principles down around the, the, the future of, of, of maternity care, particularly related to the National Maternity Hospital. So the expectation was then this would place the government in a difficult position uh, and would end up with having to put forward a counter motion. There being votes and people then having to decide which, which side they're on. The government seemed to call the bluff there and say, no, no, we agree broadly in principle with what's, what's going on there, so we're happy with that. So there won't be a vote. Now, tonight, uh, there will... Now, it looks like there will be a vote because the rural independents and Matthew McGrath have come forward and go, no, no, we want a vote uh, on it to set out our position. So this is causing enormous difficulties for two Green Party TDs. And it's too late for the government to put forward a counter-motion at this point. Well, if, even if they put forward a, a counter-motion, you'd probably end up voting on that anyway. Let, let's just be quite clear. This is not a vote no. on whether the National Maternity Hospital... It doesn't matter what happens with that with that vote. Every TD in the Dáil could vote against it, and it wouldn't matter. The, the decision has been made But uh, it's put it by, up by to cabinet. two, as you say, Green TDs in particular, uh, Patrick Costello and Nasser Horrigan, who have yeah. both been um, highly critical well, of this. So Nasser Horrigan has said what? More or less. Nasser Horrigan is, is now saying she will be, be voting with the, the Sinn Féin side of the motion. We expect that as a result of this vote that is, is, is now being, being forced... Uh, that she will end up voting against the government. She had indicated that earlier on the day. There was then not a vote. So if, if, she, if this is a massive red line or green line issue for her that she cannot agree to, she doesn't need a vote in the doll tomorrow night to express that. She can quite clearly indicate that, that she um, doesn't believe that she can be part of a, a party in government anymore and resign the whip. That's how people would do these things And she hasn't normally. done that. She hasn't, she hasn't done that and she... From listening to her earlier on the day, she seems to think that she can vote uh, against the government on this issue, but yet remain uh, an integral member uh, of the Green Party. Patrick Costello seems to be in the, in the same position, uh, complaining today that the uh, the executive isn't being held to account by the Oireachtas. Okay. Well, well, he is the executive, in effect. Right. He is part of the Green Party. The Green Party in government, four Green Party ministers sat around the cabinet table today and they agreed on the maternity hospital move in the St James's County. OK, well, speaking of uh, the Green Party TD, Patrick Costello, he's actually joining us now on Skype. Uh, Patrick Costello, how are you going to vote tomorrow? Well, I think we need to, first of all, start focus on what this vote is about. And this about is, is, is this deal good enough? And I think I've been clear in saying where I see the problems with this deal. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of uh, frustration out there. And I think that's the, what we need to focus on and remember. And remember that this deal, you know, still contains woolly language that isn't meeting the needs of women who are going to be using the service. Um, the government has said they weren't going to oppose the motion, and I think that position needs to stand, and I think the government uh, should not oppose this motion, and I think what I have said is that we should be getting a free vote on this, 
you know, and I believe that's the, the, the best way to go. I, so so I just to be clear, that. just to be very I, clear, Patrick, what way are you going to vote? Yeah, no, I appreciate that the free vote is, is not likely to happen. Um, but I think the reality is the government said they're not going to oppose that position. The, the motion, that position needs to stand. And really, I, you know, I need to take some time to, to, to reflect on this. I think Fanon put it quite rightly there, you know, which side are we on? And, you know, voting against the whip and voting against the government is not something a government TD should be doing lightly. And so, I, you know, I, I need to take some time to reflect on, on my vote and the consequences of that. Uh, your colleague, Nasa Horrigan, however, she's made up her mind. NASA has made up her mind. NASA has been very clear from, I think, very early on in this process, how important this issue is. Um, you know, we've seen at the rally at the weekend the, 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 the passion as well among the campaigners on this. And, you know, she has made her choice very early on and she's made her choice very clear. Um, this is a big decision to, if we're voting against the government. I need to take some time to think on that. I'm just, and as I'm I just say, a... I do... Patrick, because I'm just looking at your statement that you put out earlier today. You said Cabinet's decision is the wrong one, the failure to remove the phrase clinically appropriate, that that is an affront to women. If it is an affront to women, as you say, are you happy to remain in a party that is supporting this hospital move? Well, I think I do believe that it was the wrong decision. I do believe that... You know, there were plenty of options uh, 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 put out there. The suggestion of a codicil was made by government TDs. If you haven't you know, decided, sorry to cut across you, Patrick, I just don't want to sort of yeah, rehash no. the issues here. I just want yeah. to be clear, you haven't decided if this is a red line issue. You're not quite sure if this is such an affront that you will walk away from the Green Party. This is an important issue to me, and it's, part of it is about weighing up the consequences of the choice that I make next. And... Obviously, you have until, what, tomorrow evening to make that decision? When do you expect to have come to, you know, a decision on this yourself? Yeah, I think uh, it's by tomorrow I'll have to decide because, you know, when the bell goes, you can't avoid that and you have to stand uh, uh, in a lobby and push the right button. Okay. Push the button. So, Just you know, stay on the there, line there, for a moment. There, um, there is uh, a reckoning coming and I have to decide. OK, if you just stay on the line for a moment. Fiona? Yeah, well, I mean... Which in whether whatever way he goes goes tomorrow night on the vote, he has to decide: is this the fundamental issue that that sees him uh, resign the whip in effect? I, I don't think we've had this before now with the Green Party when they were new to government uh, in July of 2021, and two of their TDs didn't vote with the government. And on that occasion, it was a bit of a fudge. And um, we've seen that that has upset people in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who said, that them's the rules, you're either in government or you're not. So he needs to decide now, is he, is he sticking with the, par the party? Leadership is clearly sticking with this decision and staying in government and is he staying with it? Jennifer, this is one of your governmental colleagues. What do you think of his... Well, at the moment, it's the indecision, I think it's fair to say. It's a matter for him what he does, but I think you know, his language is very interesting. He says it's an affront to women. It's not an affront to me. It's not an affront to the female lawyers who worked on this deal to get it right. It's not an affront to the many female clinicians and trainee consultant obstetricians around the country who have signalled that this is necessary, that this is what they want to see. He paints it as though it's two sides, good and evil, uh, and nothing in between. I want to see a top-class maternity hospital for the women of Ireland, for the women of my constituency as much as he does. But when I hear from the opposition, and, and actually, if you look at the motion, it talks about what David Cullinan ran into, read, read into the Dáil record today, full ownership. 
This is full ownership. There isn't a contest about that. A leasehold of this kind is full ownership. But it's, 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 it's this, this culture war, this good and bad, things can only be done in one way. What I haven't heard, really, is a specific alternative plan, a real one, a where, a when, a how, the mechanisms by which it's going to be delivered. What does that mean in terms of top-class delivery for maternity? Okay. I'm hearing from clinicians that this is what needs to happen for a variety of reasons, including their various specialisms, including that the way they've been working to date. So uh, I would like to hear from opponents, if they want something else, point. Uh, Roisin Shortall, it is an affront to you as a woman. Well, yes, and it's an affront to a lot of women. I'm sure, you know, you've heard from many women in your constituency, Jennifer, about their concerns. There are many who want it as well. Sure, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I'm just saying, I'm sure you've heard from many who are concerned about this. And there's a lack of clarity about what's actually involved. Look, everybody wants to see a high quality new national maternity hospital but it's really important that we do it properly and you know there are two outstanding major issues in relation to this the first one is why on earth would the government be spending 800 million plus on a, a national uh, maternity hospital fully publicly funded and yet kind of gifting it to a private entity a private company and you know, I'd have serious concerns about that, whether it's religious or otherwise. We shouldn't be doing that. And if the government is serious about slowing care and ensuring we have proper public health services, then that should be a fully public hospital, in yeah. my view. And of course, the second thing is in relation to that uh, concerning <coughs> and ambiguous uh, comment, or, or the, comment, the phrase throughout all of the legal documents about um, um, clinically appropriate and no clarification on that. You and know, just, just really just want to ask you, I just want to ask you a question. Jennifer, because it was being reported right across the weekend that you were working actually on an addendum or a codicil to yeah. deal with this yeah. clinically appropriate phrase. What I was, was working was that a, a made-up story? Did you not what look I at was, this at all? What I was working on, what I said at our meeting with the with the representatives, and I said it in the Dáil, was I thought that the government needed to do four things to provide assurance to people in relation to this. It was very clear to me that the clinically appropriate language was okay, but it wasn't that it was fine legally, but it wasn't enough. It seemed politically. I suggested either put something in the memo or develop a codicil to develop to deal with it. They put something in the memo about that to clarify that today at the highest level of government memo. I also suggested a centre for reproductive. It's in the government memo. There isn't, there isn't a more a document of more significance really in the state than a decision of the government. What you've said is that this will go to the High Court and it's ambiguous and I'm saying that they will refer back to the, the text of the government decision which has been published. Okay, well, Sorry, like, may I finish though? Yeah. A Centre for Reproductive Excellence which was published today and I said that the Minister, now they decided to go with the hospital, should report on the delivery of services on an annual basis to show real transparency that okay. people were getting the services. I'm actually, pl I also said something else, but they delivered those three as part of the outcome today. Ro oh, okay. I, I also had concerns about this I, all the way through. I looked for extra public interest directors. I wanted to be absolutely clear about no religious involvement. I wanted to be absolutely clear that women Did would you get, get those the full. Extra public interest directors? Yes, it went from one to three. Yeah, and that's really important to provide a balance, to provide a stronger role from the state than had been envisaged originally. Okay. But, but so we I had been all of those. And most sorry, people no, expected were. a definition so that there wouldn't be any ambiguity. And, you know, we but heard last... Sorry, no, no, sorry, just one second. We heard last week from a number of people who support this proposal uh, that they were interpreting that phrase differently. So that's why there's a need to okay. actually provide a definition okay. in each of the legal documents. And we're, and, we're not and going we're to not get getting that, that now, it and, appears. But, but can I just say, the Minister said there, if there's any confusion, if there's any doubt about it, that... Uh, there can be a reference to him as minister. Now, 
that's no way to run a health service. Do you know, we should be very clear about what's allowed under the law and there shouldn't have to be a reference right. back to the Minister. Yes, I, want to go, the I want to go to David Quinn. David, how has the government handled this issue? Um, well, I mean, I come at this from a completely different angle. I mean, I regard this essentially as a civil war between two sides who voted for appeal. I mean, I wish the nuns had held on to St Vincent's private and public and St Michael's. Uh, they could have handed over to a lay Catholic trust. I wish they had told the National Maternity Hospital maybe to go out to Talley University Hospital and co-locate near them. That's what I would have preferred to see happen. Um, I think that in the middle of all this, um, there's been an awful lot of language incredibly condemnatory of the nuns and the Sisters of Charity themselves. There's been a, a total focus on the negative side of their legacy to the total exclusion of the positive side of their legacy. Like what's, what's lost sight of is here was this um, you know, female order that founded the first exclusively um, uh, um, uh, all-female hospital, St. Vincent's, back in the 1830s. Uh, they then found, you know, the first hospice in Ireland okay. in 1876. Yeah, and this is all of the positives, but, you know, yeah. people are very well-versed in the negatives well, exactly, here too. But you see, and people have very much suffered yeah, because of those negatives. But you see, the point is, people are extremely well-versed in the negative, and they're not versus the positive at all. Okay, because, but is that relative to actually this conversation well, now because uh, yeah, the Sisters uh, of Charity are no well, longer part of Well, this. it is somewhat relevant, I think, because they've been dragged into it over and over and over again. And part, a big part of the debate is that the um, legacy has been wholly negative. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it gives the full picture. I mean, to this day, you know, Catholic organisations run 5,000 hospitals worldwide, 16,000 health clinics, mainly in developing countries. If they were to vanish, there would be an enormous vacuum left from millions upon millions of people. And we, and we shouldn't forget that. And the foundations of modern secular um, hospitals are built on religious foundations. Uh, Fiona, um, are you surprised that, um, I suppose, those in the M NMH wanted this to continue as a sort of a voluntary hospital? That it, you know, there doesn't seem to be this huge desire for it to be a state hospital on state land. No, the, um, the NMH have been quite clear from the off that they wanted to, to be uh, remain a, a voluntary uh, hospital. I, I was... Quite surprised to hear a phrase being used at a briefing they did on Friday. We heard it. They, they referenced how this hospital was being built and, and the state was getting all the hospital services free of charge. And you're kind of looking at this going, the only thing that's public about this, this new hospital is the taxpayers' money that's going into it. It's going to be a voluntary hospital, so it won't be state-owned. Like a rotunda, uh, mind you. Yeah, that, that's fine. I'm not... I'm not, I'm not decrying the services mm. that are being provided. Mm. I'm just making a statement about this mm. notion of a public hospital. Mm. So the hospital won't be publicly owned. The land now, as we know, won't be publicly owned. Private care will, will still be readily available within the hospital, even though we're talking about slauncher care and phasing things out and so on and so forth. Here's a hospital that'll be ready at the end of the decade and the plans in place at the moment are that there will be private care within that hospital. So th that whole notion of, of public has become uh, a bit of a farce. I, I think the, the debate has, has broadened out probably beyond just the moving of a building from one location to a, a, a better location and into one about what symbolically this means. Yeah, OK, I want to move on to the uh, other big uh, story now. And the EU has warned that it will respond if Britain makes proposed law change around post-Brexit trading arrangements. It comes after the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss told the House of Commons today that she intends to introduce the legislation in the coming weeks to make amendments to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I am announcing our intention to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes in the protocol. 
Our preference remains the negotiated solution with the EU. And in parallel with the legislation being introduced, we remain open to further talks if we can achieve the same outcome through negotiated settlement. What will make that much more difficult is if, is if the British government introduces legislation uh, that effectively is saying, give us what we want or we're going to take it anyway, uh, through our own legislation. That's no way to negotiate with a neighbour and a friend. Uh, Jennifer, um, Mario Sakovic today was saying uh, that, you know, don't basically forget the EU will take all measures at its disposal if the UK moves unilaterally. I presume they mean, you know, potentially tear up the trade and cooperation agreement um, and begin some sort of a trade war putting on trade sanctions on the UK. Where would that leave Ireland? I think it's very important that we try not to get to that position and that we. this is not the first time that we've been in this position. They've signalled their intent to do this. It hasn't been done. We've been down this road before. Um, very unhelpful, very unwelcome by the UK to play out their Tory party politics, essentially, with this peace and stability on this island. There's, but ultimately, they're just how after could this impact us? Well, I would very much, it's the same risk that there has been all the way through, that you end up in a, in a situation where we don't have the protections that the protocol and the withdrawal agreement have given to us, or at least seemed to give to us until the UK took unilateral steps to step away from that. I would hope that this, this can be resolved like the previous, the previous versions of this have been resolved. Don't forget the steps the EU have taken, even over the last number of weeks. They just resolved the medicine issue quietly and without difficulty. I'm on the Good Friday Agreement Committee in the Iraq. This. We've spoken to business leaders in Northern Ireland and the Chambers of Commerce who've said there isn't a difficulty. They're working out some practical problems, but there isn't a difficulty. This is an entirely political fabrication for the Tory party who nearly seem okay. to want to be in conflict all the time with the EU. Uh, Fiona, it was interesting today because we weren't sure if we were going to get sight of legislation. We didn't get any sight of the legislation. It was just a statement from uh, Liz Truss. Do you think that was intentional to sort of create, you know, this sort of opening now for more dialogue, for more negotiation, but to just sort of leave the threat of the uh, legislation hanging over it all? Yeah, well, she has effectively set her, her, her position in effect by saying she wants two channels similar to, to an airport. The Green Channel, ironically, uh, is, is going into to Northern Ireland. Red Channel moves on uh, through the Re Republic. And that's basically the, the British setting out their basis for, for negotiations and what they, they want to see the broad outcome being. It is political. If out of this, unionism needs to, to save face in order to get back into the executive, well, then maybe something will, ha will have to be uh, conceded there. We know that the, the British government at this stage are obsessed with saying we, we beat the EU and something, so, you know, so be it. But, it, yeah, there, there is, a, a, there is, a, a, there is a, a basis there now. Where each side knows where, where things are going. All right, look, my panel is staying with me. Uh, next, we're going to be talking to the Children's Ombudsman about what he sees as government policy failures for our children. Stay with us. Young people are still experiencing serious delays in accessing essential services, according to the Children's Ombudsman. Publishing his annual report, Niall Muldoon says government agencies need to be more child-centred. Claire Brock sat down with him earlier today to discuss this and the surge in complaints to his office of almost 80%. And after three months of the first lockdown back in March uh, 2020, 
my colleagues in Britain had a, a system in place where schools were opened for children with, who were vulnerable, children with special needs and children who had a social work connection. And those children were entitled to go to school and teachers would have been there to help them out. I wrote to the, the government fairly early in the situation after that to say, listen, we should be looking in that direction for our children who are vulnerable. It never came to fruition, um, but we know that the cost of that is that many of our children, particularly children with special needs, regressed enormously during the lockdown. Do you feel the government ignored your advice, what you were saying throughout the pandemic, about the concerns that you have that were being brought to you? Well, again, I mean, I think government are making decisions all the time, but from my point of view, I think this was a real... This was a hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Win-win, as far as I was concerned, everybody could have benefited from that. The parents would have had an opportunity to take up that case. They didn't have to send the child to school every day, but they could have used it for a day or two, given the child the routine. Uh, teachers would have been available to do it. You wouldn't need an awful lot of teachers to do it either. Um, but I think it, it was a real missed opportunity, and the, it's the children that are paying the price for that, because their respite centres were also cancelled. Their, their OTs, SLTs were, were cancelled. So they missed so many opportunities during that two-year period to take advantage of that, op that style of thinking. You've looked at the impact of school closures, especially on vulnerable children. Let's talk about the knock-on effects. What impacts do you think will extend beyond the pandemic? Well, we already know that there's been an increase of approximately 30% in, in mental health referrals around the country um, in relation to children under 18. We know that they've had difficulty accessing a lot of those mental health services that are meant to support them, and we know there's a real um, shortage of primary care therapeutic services as well. So. Bringing that all together, we know that over the next number of years, we'll have children who've, been, who've only got anxiety, only got depression because of the COVID situation and have not been able to come out of it because they haven't got professional help. It's one of the reasons I would have been encouraging over the last five years to create a therapeutic service within every school in the country to uh, ensure that every primary school and secondary school has access to therapists. How the state treats children with disabilities, this is something that has come up in your report. It's not new, and yet you believe it's not being addressed properly. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, there's, there's so many things that are predictable. 
we have had complaints from, from parents where a child might have only one leg and every year they have to take a photograph to prove their right to that child to get access to, to care. So that child is, have to take a picture of themselves and, and show that they've only one leg. I mean, those sort of things are, are small, but they're hugely in, interfering with the child's life. And as you get older, you don't want to be taking pictures like that and sending them off to a civil servant. Again, in, a, in the greater scheme of things, things like children with disability getting access to primary school, through the primary school getting the supports they need while they're there, getting access to further on to post-primary school and getting the service they need, that should all be planned well in advance and should be really predictable. But yet we find ourselves every year with parents coming to us complaining about the crisis of, of education places for their child with special needs. That should not be the case in this day and age. With all the data we have, with all the information we have, with all the, the funding we have, again, we're, we're one of the richest countries in Europe. It's, you know, we might be stretched but still we need prioritise and that's forward planning. Looking now to 2022 and another crisis, um, that of a war and a number of child refugees that are coming to this country to seek shelter with their families. They're being put up in hotels in some instances. Do you believe that's the wrong approach that's been taken by government? When we find ourselves putting children, our families into, into hotel situations, and that's, one of the, that's what I've engaged in the, the department with, is we need to have a medium term plan here because I'm old enough to remember the first direct provision was meant to last for six months, but those people ended up there for up to 10 years. We need to make sure this doesn't happen in these circumstances. It is a slightly different circumstance, but even if the war stopped tomorrow, many of these family members wouldn't have anywhere to go back to, so they will be here for a period of time. We need to plan for that, and we need to make sure that those children are there and their rights are protected as well as any other, part, any other child in Ireland. The housing crisis is something we're all very familiar with. Again, it's come up in your report about children who are caught up in this, children in emergency accommodation, families who are in housing that is not adequate for their needs. What's the government need to do? I suppose with regards to the emergency accommodation housing in general, it really makes me angry now because I've been ombudsman since 2015. In 2016, we got an all-party committee together that created Rebuilding, in Ireland, Rebuilding Ireland program which was meant to create at least 20,000 houses a year. We have hit, failed to hit every single target since then, seven years in a row, and now we're reaping that, the, the damage that, that has done. And I can't say why that has happened exactly, but I know the government has failed many, many of our children as a result of that. And so we have many, many years of, of targets that have been failed to be hit. And now we're, we're trying to find out how do we get more accommodation here, how do we find... And it really is distressing for many of the children who are in emergency accommodation. When we had an opportunity that we let go, it really is um, frustrating from my point of view. And what about the government priorities now, the government plan now? Do you think it's, uh, they're going about it the right way and do you think it's going to solve a lot of the issues that you've seen highlighted in your report? Many of the ho homeless, and we now have 2,800 children homeless again. You know, that's, that's nearly our, our record figure again. We shouldn't have that situation. Many of them are economic, only homeless because of economic situations, can't afford rent. Parents could be working. Um, we had an example of a, of a parent in a, in a family accommodation, family hub shelter, where the father was going out to work to build houses for social housing. And the irony of it is he couldn't afford to keep his own family in a house. And we just, those are economic things that we need to be able to change. And I've, we've created a, a, an initiative last year called Better Normal and we've asked all the political parties across all the divides to promote it and to, and to accept it. And the priority is to eliminate child homelessness by 2025. So you're looking at about 2,800 children, getting them into accommodation. We do that and we change their lives forever and we change our society forever.
Children Ombudsman uh, Niall Muldoon speaking to Claire Brock there. Well, my panel is still here with me. Fine Gael TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Social Democrats co-leader Roisin Shorthall, Independent.ie, Ireland editor Fiona Sheehan and Sunday Times columnist uh, David Quinn. I want to come to you first, Roisin. Look, just listening to the Children's Ombudsman there, I mean, there was just a list, wasn't there? Children in housing that is not adequate to their needs. A crisis, he said, for educational spaces for children with special needs. Children with depression in this mm -hmm. country because of COVID that they have no chance of getting out of anytime soon because the services are not available. It was a litany of complaints. Uh, absolutely. And Dr Muldoon is a very strong and vocal advocate for vulnerable children. And from a very, very early stage in the lockdown, he was talking about the impact of the closure of services, including schools, on disadvantaged children. And I remember him describing that as heaping additional disadvantage on already disadvantaged children. And, um, you know, th that cohort of children, th they're still kind of dealing with the legacy of that, uh, where they've been knocked back further. And he spoke about the importance of children being connected into services, including school, of course, uh, for things like, you know, mental health services, for basic things like nutrition. And the fact that, regrettably and sadly and shamefully, there are a lot of children in homes that are actually very dangerous where there's abuse and where there's harm being caused. And for those children suffering that kind of trauma, we need to ensure that there are proper services. There are long waiting lists for all the therapeutic services at community level. We hear about all the, the hospital waiting lists, but there are these hidden waiting lists of children in particular waiting for services in the community. And, and you, like, you do, if a child is denied those services, they don't get back those years in their childhood. And Dr Muldoon spoke in his report about um, a particular uh, situation. He spoke about a family that had three foster children, children who had been in care. And each of the three of them had very serious needs because of the fact that they had been traumatised in their earlier lives. Well, to a and certain, yeah, five right, years, right. after five years, that woman wasn't able to access proper uh, uh, services for, for those children. All right, I want to let so, uh, like, David, th you th There's a range there. of issues where we're failing children. Yeah, well, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, lockdown chickens are coming home to roost because we had some of the longest lockdowns in Europe and there were certain areas locked down for too long, like schools. It wasn't just the government's fault. I mean, Neffet was insisting on this too. Um, uh, the teachers' unions were insisting on that. And uh, we, so we had some of the longest closures of schools in, in the whole of Europe. I mean, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, I'm thinking here of Finland, Denmark, Norway, not Sweden. Sweden never closed primary schools. But if you take these other countries that did go into lockdown first time around, they kept the schools open much longer. And places like Finland and Norway, by the way, ended up with a much lower debt toll than us. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, and obviously, we kept construction closed too long as well. And the result of that is uh, a further housing shortage, but it's also affecting children. Um, we don't yet have a public inquiry, so far as I know, properly organised about COVID and lockdowns. And, and we can look taken. at the decisions and, we made and perhaps yeah, the wider and, impacts that they had. Yeah, and this is one of the things we're going to have to look at. Yeah, I just want to put the housing issue to you because, um, Jennifer, I heard Niall Muldoon saying, you know, they have an aim, eliminate child homelessness by 2025 in three years. Can your government do this? Um, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you that, that, I, that I can be sure that that can be so. I, I don't know. I, I also heard him say about the Rebuilding Ireland figures. Um, you know, the, the reality is we are delivering 33,000 homes every year. Now, that needs to be higher. Um, but we have 2,800 children in homeless accommodation. 
Yes, and and I work, you know, I, I work with with their families, and I, you know, we try. Many of those then also get resolved. But I appreciate the, the difficulty that's there. I think as well, you know, the, the, for me, the big part of the report was the inconsistency in autism services generally and access to education. Partly because I think my area is one of the worst in terms of provision. He's highlighted the inconsistency of service delivery by the HSE. I know he's doing a special report on it to be published this year. That's of particular concern because I can see the funding there with Anne Rabbit's budget. I can see the extra, extra hundred and eighty thousand but I don't see them delivering services for children in my constituency. So, you know, I, the work that he does is really, really important nationally, but it's, it's individually important to constituencies and to families. And this is something that I'm really waiting for. Uh, Fiona, he did also uh, mention um, the children of Ukrainian refugees coming into Ireland, living in hotel rooms, and whether that might become sort of a long-term solution. We did hear the government today announcing this €400 Euro opt-in if you choose um, to provide accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. How many people does the government think that's going to encourage but their houses or their rooms forward? Not clear, and, and it doesn't seem to be the, the primary blockage at the moment, which seems to be a, a, a bureaucratic backlog in terms of vetting and approving people, which obviously should and has, has to be done. Uh, but the speed with which it, it's been undertaken uh, seems to be quite so. There's also seems to be an issue around the payment date uh, for, for, for this payment. It's quite remarkable how two years ago we can turn around the entire system overnight. Pascal Donoghue and the Revenue Commissioner and the Department of, of Finance SecGen sitting on the couch in the Minister's office and basically creating an entirely new payment structure for 400,000 people overnight. And yet this was during payment, COVID. Yeah, during COVID. And yet a payment like this will be announced almost six weeks ago now and it's going to take another two months before it, it kicks in. So They it, promised to backdate it though, haven't they? Yeah, they have promised to backdate it. But they, again, the... the to roll over time just you know isn't uh, terribly terribly convincing and you'd have to say at, at this point have you have you lost the wind of opportunity now in terms of getting people to to, to sign up uh, to take in people in, in in the first place one wonders it's given the numbers that are coming it you wonder now is that is that really where the the policy focus needs to be. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm sure we will come back to all of those topics. My thanks to Jennifer, uh, Roshin, Fionan and David. Next, why coming out is so difficult for people in the football world here and football manager Wayne Rooney lines out in his wife's defence at the Wagatha Christie trial. We'll have an update from London. Do you stay with us. Football manager Wayne Rooney has told the London High Court of the toll the Wagatha Christie controversy took on his wife Colleen, who has accused fellow footballer's wife Rebecca Vardy of leaking stories to the press. Vardy is suing Rooney for libel. Our court's reporter Deborah Naylor is in London for us covering the trial. She told me tonight about Wayne Rooney's evidence. Yes, Kira. we started giving evidence today about the 2016 Euros and he said that he was asked by the then England manager Roy Hodgson to have a conversation with Jamie Vardy uh, in relation to his wife to ask Rebecca Vardy to calm down. Now, he said that at the time there was concern um, among the FA that Rebecca Vardy was somewhat of a distraction uh, because of her, her media engagements at the time and that it was up to Rain Rooney. He was told 
told basically to have a conversation with Jamie Vardy. He said in his evidence today that he was 100% certain that this conversation took place. He said it was awkward having this conversation with his teammate, but that he did so. And he also gave evidence today. Um, he said that in 2017 that his wife, Colleen Rooney, um, had, had spoken about how posts of hers were being leaked to the media and how she was suspicious at the time that it was Rebecca Vardy. But he said he had no idea whatsoever of what his wife uh, was planning in relation uh, to putting up fake Instagram posts, which are, of course, at the heart of this trial. And he said the first he ever heard of this was, in fact, when he saw that tweet in 2019. And it is that over that tweet, of course, that Rebecca Vardy is suing Colleen Rooney for libel. Uh, Jamie Vardy, we just saw him there going into court for the first time with his wife. Did he react when he saw Wayne Rooney? Did they react to each other? They certainly acknowledged each other in court today, but it has to be said Wayne Rooney in his evidence said that he was never friendly with Jamie Vardy off the pitch. He said that they did not hang in the same social circles. And as I said, he did refer to that conversation with him being awkward. But of course, I suppose it's not really surprising in many ways, given um, how this libel battle is now in its, its closing stages. And it has been uh, quite a, a vicious libel battle that the two men um, at this point are, are not uh, more friendly with one another. Now, Jimmy Vardy isn't a witness, Deborah, but his representatives uh, did issue a statement after Wayne Rooney's evidence. What did it say? Yes, well, effectively, Jamie Vardy said today that Wayne Rooney was confused and that he was mistaken about that conversation that they had at the 2016 Euros. Uh, he is basically alleging that that conversation never took place, although Rain Rooney, Rain, Wayne Rooney rather said he was 100% sure that it did today. So uh, Jamie Vardy certainly uh, claiming that his version of events uh, was correct and that Wayne Rooney was mistaken in this regard. All right, we will leave it there for now. Uh, Deborah Naylor, thank you for speaking to us. Well, a British footballer has ended decades of silence in soccer by becoming the first player in the UK to come out as gay since Justin Fashionu in 1990. 17-year-old Blackpool forward Jake Daniels said he wanted to act as a role model for others in the game. It's time to do it, you know. I feel like I'm ready to tell people about my story. I want people to know the real me. And lying all the time, this isn't what I've wanted to do and it has been a struggle, but now I just do feel like I'm ready to be myself, be free and just be confident with it all. Well, I'm joined now by Daniel Lambert, the Chief Operating Officer at the Dublin Football Club Bohemians. You're very welcome to uh, the programme. How exceptional uh, is this? It's remarkable. I think it's, it's uh, kind of apt that today is International Day against... Uh, homophobia, transphobia and uh, biphobia, um, just, just to note that. But the guy's 17, you know, when you read his statement, it's, it's remarkable, it's courageous, I think it's inspirational. Um, and it really just took a huge amount of courage uh, to do this. You know, we've, we have two now openly gay footballers, male footballers uh, in the world, you know, the most played game on the planet, there's professional leagues in every country, including our own. And there's um, Josh Cavallo in Adelaide in Australia, and now Jake Daniels at Blackpool in the UK. It's, it's remarkable. And that's it. I mean, two people, nobody for a second thinks that there is only two people playing um, soccer who are gay. Absolutely. Like, it's inconceivable that, that there aren't thousands of, of gay footballers globally. And I think the fact that we only have two, the fact that we're here speaking about this, that it's made news around the world, uh, speaks to, I suppose, the enormity of the problem in football, that 
um, people who are gay don't feel comfortable and it extends beyond players to supporters as well and it's a huge problem. Do you think there are players in the Irish League at the moment who haven't come out, who don't feel comfortable to come out? Well, I, I don't know of, of anybody personally. Obviously, I'm involved in the league, but, you know, given the numbers who play, uh, I, I'd say, again, it's, it's highly, highly likely, obviously. Um, and, and it's a sad thing to, to think, you know, and ultimately, I suppose, we do need to tackle this, this problem head on. It's not something that's really spoken about. This has obviously now brought it into you know, a place where it's being discussed today and, and hopefully that discussion can lead to a positive place because we've already seen, I suppose, you know, on some of the, I think Sky broke the story and they had to turn off comments on Twitter. Um, Jake had to turn off comments on his own Instagram. So, you know, even those dem those two actions demonstrate there there is still a lot of negativity and really a lot of intolerance around it. So wh what is it then about uh, soccer in particular? And, and it, we must point out, it is the men's soccer. There's no real issue, I think, when it comes to uh, women's uh, soccer. What is it about the culture that makes it so difficult for somebody to be honest about their sexuality? It's a good question. I think, you know, it, it is quite, and it has been historically quite a male-dominated kind of atmosphere, I suppose, when you see, you know, and that is changing to a degree, but but historically and in, in still in, in most stadia, you know, football is dominated and there, there might be a kind of a, a laddish culture, I suppose. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's kind of been frustrating, I suppose, and, it, you know, there is a lot of kind of pinkwashing goes on and, and we saw, you know, over the last 24 hours, for example, Newcastle United come out with a tweet supporting Jake, Newcastle United are owned by the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund. Like, they literally imprison, torture and kill people because they are gay. So I think the football clubs need to really take concrete actions. Uh, I think there's, there's really two ways that the clubs can do that. Uh, one is around education. Uh, at Bohemians, uh, this year, we've worked with Shoutout to provide coach education to all our youth coaches around uh, tolerance and inclusivity and, you know, specific programmes to, to, to work with coaches on players who, who, you know, who might be gay and involved in, in, in the club. Um, but also, we need to be able to call out and to challenge people who, who you know, who voice, uh, you know, really what is, you know, hate from terraces. And we've, we've tackled that in things like racism. There's still issues, but it's been tackled quite, quite widely. But it just isn't yet on this issue when we need to. And the awful thing is, I mean, we're calling this, I think, a, you know, a watershed moment because it is the first player in the UK since 1990. But everybody is worried for this young lad, aren't they? That, you know, the next time he goes out on the pitch, the next time he does something wrong, that those sort of homophobic slurs will come from the terrace. He will be subjected to those. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it'd be naive to, to think otherwise, you know, and, and you'd hope that he is prepared for that, but he shouldn't have to. This, this really shouldn't be something that exists. And, um, you know, when we think, I suppose, about, you know, just that Bohemians' actions that clubs can take, and they do have to take concrete actions, there's symbolic things you can do. We fly the Pride flag in Daly Mount Park. We have the only LGBT supporters group in football in Ireland. Uh, they, were, they were, you know, they came out in 2016. They have a brilliant name in, in Gaybos, I think probably the best supporters group name I can think of. Um, and they had, we've spoken to them, we speak to them as a club, and they've told us that even simply flying the Pride flag in Daily Mount beside the national flag, beside the club flag, is important to them. They've went to other places where there hasn't been tolerance, and that, that symbolism is important. And we was there any resistance to that? There wasn't, no, and, and, and I think, you know, we, there are steps we, we can take. We need to go further. Like, this year, obviously, we're, we're the first professional football team to be involved in Pride, and we'd hope other clubs would, would, would follow. And again, it's just to demonstrate, you know, to people who you know, who are gay in Ireland, that football is a place that, that they should be included. And that's not to say there aren't problems. There are but big problems. How do you do that, I suppose, without being seen to just play lip service to it? You I know, they're taking part in pride, but nothing necessarily changes at a club. I think it takes place really through the education piece initially. So, you know, I think clubs need to work with their coaches and to educate coaches if it's not something they're familiar with, that they, they need to be more familiar with it. They need to educate themselves and then to take concrete steps, um, you know, as a club, 
education, but also to challenge views. And, and I think it can be achieved, but it's going to be, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a long process. Like, you know, when we speak at the start about world football and such few numbers, this is a problem that exists across the board in men's football like in Ireland, in the UK and globally. Is it the same issue in other sports? It doesn't seem to be. You know, we think in the GAA there's been openly gay players. We see it in other sports and it was mentioned by Jake that he was inspired by, by you know, other sports people and other athletes. I think, you know, it does probably revolve around that sense of very large groups at games that are pretty male-dominated, and that, that, that's probably the core issue. Yeah, it must be very difficult then to be um, gay and to be a supporter of one of these matches too. Totally, and that, that's, I think, not something that people consider. You know, if you're, I suppose, if you're a, a young person and, and you're attending a football game and you're attending with a group of close friends and that's maybe something that's, a, you know, a key part of your identity, and if there's homophobic abuse coming from what is essentially your peer, your peer group, I suppose you have two options. One, you remove yourself from the group, um, which would be a really difficult thing to do. Or the second and probably the worst option would be to remain. And, and you know, and, and that would obviously, you know, do a lot of damage to somebody in terms of hiding their own identity um, and cause problems. And there must be so many supporters and players who take the second option, um, you know, and, and not be honest with who they are. So do you feel we're losing players then because of this? We have to be, and there's no figures on anything like that. It's impossible to say how many, but I, I, I think... Again, it would be really naive to think that players haven't, you know, quit the game uh, at a young age because they feel maybe that this isn't a place that's, that, that they can be themselves. Does this encourage people, though, to, to come forward and to come out? It's a good question, does it? And, you know, you'd hope it would, but you see the response and we mentioned closing comments. So I think there's an awful lot of work to be done and it needs to be done by clubs, by individuals at games, by national associations. It really needs to be tackled. Um, because he was getting abuse almost immediately, wasn't he? On sort of, you know, the Sky News website after that interview on his own personal Instagram yeah, page. He was, and it, and it was really, really quick. So I think, you know, at all grounds, we talk about, you know, xenophobia is not acceptable. And, and you know, and that's that's been widely understood. And it's, you know, it's, and thankfully we've seen okay. big changes. But on, on homophobia, it's still prevalent. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Daniel Lambert, thank you for coming in to us. That's it from us this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 